All right, so uh, we're starting again tonight with our uh, Week in Woke, um, which is becoming a bit of a fan favorite on Tuesday nights. The problem with the Week in Woke is that we could spend a week on what's happened in wokeness in the previous week. So I have to pick and choose um, what's going on out there. Um, but a couple of things in particular I thought might be interesting to talk about. This article was published uh, a little over a year ago, but it started making the rounds again this past week. Um, and so I, I thought this was interesting because if you've been with us for a few weeks, you understand this headline now. The headline of this article and the gal in the picture, she's the author of a book that came out early last year. And her belief is we can't have a feminist future without abolishing the family. So she, her point of view is she just comes out and says it. It's not that we're trying to live in peace alongside the traditional family, but in order for the true feminist vision to have its way, we actually have to get rid of the family. Now, again, we should understand this by now, that this is actually the ideology. It's been the ideology for a very long time. Um, Karl Marx wrote in the Communist Manifesto, abolish the family, exclamation mark. And his next sentence was, most of you will think that's too far, but it's not. We have to get rid of it. And then everyone after him who revised his teaching, cultural Marxism, neo-Marxism, all these things that we've dealt with all have some things in common. And one of them is we have to abolish the family to get where we're trying to go. So the very first institution that God created on earth, this ideology is trying to get rid of. Man and wife create a family, God's institution, well, we have to get rid of that as quickly as we possibly can. And this, this was um, in the article, an interview, part of the interview of her about her book. Um, just listen to the language. If all forms of pregnancy count as work, and she means work in the Marxist term, we've, we've thrown someone in a sweat factory, and that's work. If all forms of pregnancy count as work, we can take a clear-eyed look at our current working conditions. It is a wonder we let fetuses inside us, she says at the start of her book. I mean, what do you, what do, you do with that? Citing the roughly 1,000 people in the United States who still die as a result of pregnancy and childbirth each year, mostly poor women and women of color. Now, again, we understand that, too. The argument right now is that if there is a disparity in outcome, it is evidence of systemic racism. That's how the equation works. If there's a difference in outcome, if we can point to any group of statistics that say that things are different for the poor, if things are different for this minority or this minority, then we work backwards and we say, well, all of that is evidence clearly of systemic racism. So what she does is she politicizes pregnancy. This situation is social, it's political, not simply natural. Pregnancy is not a natural thing, it's a political thing. Things are like this for political and economic reasons. We made them this way. 
We've made culture like this, and we have to break these shackles off of our back and rearrange the way that we see motherhood and pregnancy and family itself. We keep saying this, and we keep being confronted with this truth. This ideology that comes out of Marxism and is now wokeism, critical theory, the political hardcore left, all of these things, they're not trying to change things around the fringes of culture and morality to fix those things out there. They're trying to change the very core of culture and morality in the way that we do things. So this is her vision of, uh, of pregnancy and of feminism. How many of you saw this picture this week. Yeah, I, I've, I figured Eric would raise his hand on this one. So the UK is starting to repaint some of their patrol cars, and this is how they're repainting them. They're now hate crime patrol cars. And you can see the rainbow flag, and you can see the LGBTQ uh, lettering on the side of the car. Now they're redistributing um, some of their current patrol cars to do different things than normal. Uh, so this is from the article. Police are replacing patrol cars with hate crime cars to encourage people to report incidents such as social media comments. So this car will show up at your place of business or your work if someone says, you posted something on social media that we deem to be hate speech or offensive or we don't. Now the police will show up and they'll show up in this car. It's not a clown car. It's... <laughs> not actual hate crimes, opinions, things written online. That is correct. So the Deputy Chief Constable, Julie Cook, of the um, Organization of Police Forces in the UK, said that the cars painted with the police insignia and rainbow designs are now part of our vehicle fleet and will be driven daily by officers on patrol. How would you have liked that one, Eric? Yeah, beautiful. However, now, I love this kind of stuff, okay? So the people who are in favor of these kinds of things, the people who allocate times and time and funds to repaint patrol cars to look this way for these reasons tend not to be the people who actually live on ground level in the cities. They tend to live in their gated communities and up on the 36th floor in their townhomes. So the criticism that they get is this. However, critics have said that forces should instead focus on policing real issues such as knife crime and rape, with the latest figures showing poor prosecution rates. So the figures in the UK is that they're doing a bad job of actually prosecuting knife crimes and rape, and now they take some of their resources and they take it away from knife crimes and rape to hate crimes and social media posts. So who complains about what's happening? People who are most likely to be subject to knife crimes and rape. And who does not listen to that complaint? People who are the least susceptible to things like knife crime and rape. That's just how the process works, all right? So there's, there's a little bit of your weekend woke. And again, I, I have to pick and choose. We could spend a very long time on this kind of stuff. But these things are indicative, and they should be making more and more sense to us all the time, given the kinds of things that we are starting to understand. Now, I want to start talking about the spread of mandates and what they have to do with wokeism. 
Now, as I walk into this, we're, we're gonna, you know, we're, it's gonna overlap with mask mandates, vas- vaccine mandates, vaccine passport mandates, these kinds of things. I'm not concerned with the science. I'm not anti-vax. What I am interested in are the political and the social dynamics that are going on with this. As far as the science is concerned, why is there only one point of view that is allowable? These kinds of questions. What does this have to do with wokeism and how wokeism works, where there are very real answers to these questions? All right, so this happened this morning. Speaking of mandates, this happened this morning. So this guy is a reporter for KOAA News here in Colorado Springs. So he received confirmation from the Department of Labor and Employment in Colorado. So now if your company has an internal vaccine mandate and you get fired because you refuse the vaccine, you are no longer eligible for unemployment under Colorado state law. Why? That's always a really good question to ask. Why? Now, more and more people are facing this decision. Okay? I'm talking, I talked to people last Sunday who are facing this decision. Every now and then I get an email from folks, and we're talking on the phone with people who they or their family members are facing these kinds of decisions. You might think, well, I disagree with my company, so I'm going to work here until they fire me. Then I'm on unemployment until I can find another job at another company. And the state of Colorado says no. So this is just a way in which the state of Colorado, from the back door, can mandate vaccines in certain locations. If a business does it, the state of Colorado is actually going to support that mandate now. So he answered one question, and as far as um, a health exemption goes to the vaccines... Um, the state of Colorado has to honor uh, those exemptions. I asked him about, in the state of Colorado, about religious exemptions or conscience exemptions. I've received no reply yet uh, to that. So I have no clue if conscious or conscientious objection or religious objection applies now in the state of Colorado to this. I don't know. But these kinds of things continue to happen. New York City, this is a famous thing right now. A friend of mine who's a pastor in the state of California sent me an article about what's happening in San Francisco. And um, what's the county where San Jose is? Santa Clara County, um, which may as well be somewhere deep in uh, the middle of uh, China. (laughs) Roughly the same politics there in Santa Clara County. Um, So... Their level of vaccine mandates just continues to um, expand and expand and expand and expand. Well, why these mandates? Why is this going on? I want to reflect on this as far as um, wokeism is concerned, the ideas that we have been wrestling with now for a few weeks because there is a direct connection and it will help us understand part of what's going on. So getting into this, Um, We're going to go back to a character that we met a few weeks ago. His name is Herbert Marcuse. And he is a, um, uh, he is a, well, he's he's gone now, but he was a philosopher in the middle of the 20th century, a social philosopher. Um, He was on the leading edge of critical theory. Um, He calls himself a Marxist. He's a cultural Marxist, neo-Marxist. 
His writings have become the foundation for what we call the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s. He wrote a lot in the mid to late 1960s. It becomes the foundation for now what we would call critical theory, critical race theory, wokeism, the hardcore political left, these kinds of things that we've been dealing with. So his writings are not just some sort of relic, they're actually part of the root of the tree that we're dealing with now. Um, a, a podcast that I listened to, this guy's been reading through his article, this particular uh, essay of his called An Essay on Liberation. And so it's, it's caused me to go and actually go through, read through the vast majority. And these essays are thick and they're long and they're circular, so they take a long time to get through. The old joke is true. I'm reading these things so you don't have to, right? But here's, here's part of what happens. He calls it an essay on liberation. We should know by now, we should know enough to look at that and go, I probably use the word liberation differently than he does. And you're probably right about that. This is part of the whack-a-mole uh, version that happens with this point of view. You think, you've, you think you've got something nailed down and you hit, you hit the mole and, you, and it pops up where it goes, oh, that's not what I meant. Boom, I pop up over here. You try to deal with that and it pops up over here. Um, the definitions and meanings of these words are very fluid and they change a lot. So he doesn't mean liberation. It doesn't mean what I think you think it means, right? That's how this goes. Much of the early sections of his essay build one primary case. And this is my paraphrase of it. His language and his vocabulary is very different. He doesn't put it like this, but this is what he means in his essay. People have too much stuff. They are too, much, they are too fed. He's going to complain about how much food people eat and the kinds of foods that people are allowed to eat. And they are way too comfortable. And this is getting in the way of their liberation. This is getting in the way of true revolution and true liberation. You don't know what true liberation is. He does. And he knows how to pull the levers in society to make you as miserable and as angry as possible so that you can be torn down to your bare bones and bits and now true revolution can actually happen. This is actually the structure and the argument inside of this essay. So the solution to people having too much stuff and being too comfortable and having the food that they want and having 273 versions of soda pop to choose from, his, his solution is make them as miserable as possible. Make them unhappy. So this is part of what he writes. And um, I'll go through some of this, and I'll try to um, interpret some of this. And again, I'm, I'm doing this because the people who write today, the people who run public organizations today, this is what they think. Their writings are full of this. These are the people who discipled them, okay? These are the people who discipled them. So in one little section, he says this early on. In this way, a society constantly recreates this side of consciousness and ideology, patterns of behavior and aspiration as part of the nature of its people. So culture keeps, culture keeps moving along, 
and it reinforces itself. Now, what he's griping about is the Judeo-Christian worldview and the Judeo-Christian structure of morality, of family, of sexuality, of the work ethic, these kinds of things. He says, generation after generation, it just continues to feed on itself. Parents teach children these things. They grow up in these moral structures. They teach their kids these things. And so the, the quote-unquote nature of this is that we just keep perpetuating it. So we have to break that cycle and we have to move it in a different direction. And unless revolt reaches into this second nature, into these ingrown patterns, social change will remain incomplete and even self-defeating. So it's not just that we need different politicians. We don't just need a lot of protests and change a few things. It's not even just, and he's writing this in the late 1960s, we need riots to overthrow governmental structures. It's not just that. Until we have changed human nature, and that is not an exaggeration, until we have changed human nature and what people think they want and need, what gives them meaning and purpose and ethical boundaries and guidelines, until we've done that, we haven't reached our goal. He's arguing for this inside of this paper. This is what he means by liberation. A little bit later on, he says this, this is what he describes as triumph in the end of introjection. Forget those word, that word, introjection. The stage where the people cannot reject the system of domination without rejecting themselves, their own repressive, instinctual needs and values. So success to him is to get you to reject both your natural instincts, and he means moral instincts, family instincts, things like that. You have to learn how to reject that. That will cause you to reject that in the dominant culture around you, and then we're on our way to true revolt and revolution. So why on earth were so many people so okay with over a billion dollars of violent riots in the summer of 2020? Because a lot of them were raised on this. This was their mother's milk in college, in university, their master's degree. This is what they learned. So that happening in the streets was what was supposed to happen, okay? Because this is what this guy is writing. We have to actually change human nature and get people to move in the opposite direction. Just after saying this, he quotes another author favorably. When you quote an author, author favorably, that means you agree, okay, with what that author is writing. And this is, just, this is just invaluable stuff, guys. This author says this, the ever-increasing complexity of the social structure will make some form of regimentation unavoidable. We'll get to that word in a second. Freedom and privacy may come to constitute antisocial luxuries and their attainment to involve real hardships. Again, this is their desire for society. Think about that for a second. Freedom and, freedom and privacy should become, that's the point of this, antisocial luxuries. So if you are a person who prefers your civil liberties, you're deemed antisocial. If you believe in some version of public uh, privacy, personal privacy, you will become deemed antisocial. And their attainment, if you actually try 
to get freedom and personal uh, privacy, it's going to take you a lot of work and it's going to cost you a lot to get your freedom back. And then that same author says this. <laughs> listen, I mean, listen, if I made this stuff up, you would think this is some dystopian novel. Thus it is apparent that food, natural resources, supplies of power, and other elements involved in the operation of the body machine and of the individual establishment are not the only factors to be considered in determining the optimum number of people that can live on earth. So the state now, and by the state we mean these enlightened experts and academics, will decide how much food and how much power you get. Okay, again, this is their goal. This is what they want. And this involves the breakdown of the individual becoming subservient to some larger archetype, some larger ideology or state that is run by this kind of ideology. So this author says this, the ever-increasing complexity of social structure, there's just way too many human beings out there doing their own thing. These authors don't like that. If you do something different or unique or on your own, that bugs them because you're supposed to be doing what they're telling you to do. So the ever-increasing complexity of the social structure will make some form of regimentation unavoidable. Regimentation, the act of regimenting or the state of being regimented, the strict discipline and enforced uniformity characteristic of military groups or totalitarian systems. He says it's just going to be unavoidable. It's the only way to get people in line. Do you know what China's doing to the Uyghurs right now? Have you seen the pictures of the regimentation that they impose upon an entire people group to get them to do what they want them to do? And here we have authors in the Western world who created the counterculture in the 1960s who are at the root of the tree of what we're dealing with now, saying things like, this will probably be unavoidable. And we're going to have to figure out how much food and energy and power you get just to make sure the system works the way that it's supposed to work. So Marcuse goes on later in the essay, and this is, a, this is very common. This idea is very common amongst people in this ideological world. He argues later on in the essay that people just have too much stuff and the state is just going to have to decide what is needed and what is a luxury, what you can and cannot have. It's really interesting to think about these individuals. So Marcuse fled totalitarianism in Central Europe just as World War II was breaking out. He fled it, and he ended up in the United States, and he prospered in the United States. So here this guy is, and he's not alone. It just, it's this ideology. They're walking around, and they see prosperity and they see economic progress and they see people in cars and they see people going to grocery stores on their own time and they come from a very um, simple and even torn down economic society and their thought is not how can I take this kind of prosperity and replant it back in my old culture their thought is I hate this culture and we have to tear this culture down. That is literally how they think. That is actually how they write and what they say. So they don't want to spread wealth, so to speak, or teach others how to progress. They just want to take away. 
So that's one side of this issue. Why on earth is a state going to want to start hammering down on what kind of work you're allowed to do? Well, if you've got a lot of people um, in places of political and economic power who were raised on this, it's not too surprising. I want to go back to one of the good guys in the 20th century. So Hannah Arendt is a Jew, um, a German-born philosopher, a German Jew born, uh, born in Germany. She's another one who fled uh, the Nazi regime, uh, made her way to Paris, made her way eventually to the U.S., become one of the most influential political philosophers of the 20th century. And so I'll quote every now and then from this book of hers called The Rise of Totalitarianism. And so listen to how she recognizes how the Nazis and the communists did their thing. And she talks a lot about this is how the Nazis did it, this is how Stalin and the communists did it, and she warns the West. She says, this is how it's going to happen to you guys. So listen to this. The truth is that the masses, and when she uses that phrase, the masses, she's talking about this question that sometimes we ask in our, you know, our college courses, how on earth could an entire nation go along with Nazi regime? How on earth could an entire nation go along with what happened in Ukraine when Stalin killed tens of millions of people for his program? How could that happen? So she's speaking of the masses who do just kind of go along with it. The truth is that the masses grew out of the fragments of a highly atomized society where individuals are separated from one another, whose competitive structure and concomitant loneliness of the individual has been held in check only through membership in a class. We would call it a tribe or a political party. The chief characteristic of the mass man is not brutality and backwardness, but his isolation and lack of normal social relationships. Does that sound like anything going on right now? Does that sound like any governmental structure out there that wants to keep people in their homes? You may have seen the, the video of the, I don't know if it was the director of the Department of Health or the Prime Minister of New Zealand because they had one new case, not death, one case in New Zealand last week. She goes on TV and she says, stay in your homes, don't talk to your neighbors. Don't go outside, stay in your bubble. Okay, now in her head somewhere, there's some version of the scientists told her to say that. But in the larger structure of things, why does this keep on happening? And Hannah Arendt says, here's how the masses get created. We atomize and isolate lonely individuals and their only connection to the rest of the world is through a tribe, it's through a political party, it's through a Facebook group, it's through social media, right? They lack actual social relationships. Not far after that point, she says this, totalitarian movements are mass organizations of atomized, isolated individuals. I think that describes a lot of what happened last summer. Compared with all the other parties and movements, their most conspicuous external characteristic is their demand for total, unrestricted, unconditional and unalterable loyalty of the individual members. <laughs> I know this is fantasy. None of you, you're all thinking, eh, this doesn't happen, right? This doesn't, you know, not at all. Why the need 
for ideological conformity. Why the connection between powerful social media uh, businesses and the federal government to control information? Why? Well, we watch it happening, and she says, this is how people get broken down and how they get turned into mass groups of people that do crazy things. And then just a couple of uh, paragraphs later, she says this, but within the organizational framework of the movement, so long as it holds together, the fanaticized members can be reached by neither experience nor argument. Identification with the movement and total conformism seems to have destroyed the very capacity for experience, even if it be as extreme as torture or the fear of death. And she watched exactly that happen in her native land, in the continent of Europe, in the Soviet Union. That wasn't extreme for her. And she said, even the experience of watching your neighbors go through that wasn't enough to change people's mind because they had already been broken down. They were lonely. They were isolated. They were separated from their social structures and religious structures of meaning. So now their only connection to the world is through some kind of tribe, through some kind of political party. And that political party becomes the end-all, be-all, and they can do almost anything with the masses that they want to do. All right. Putting, uh, yes. Australia's gone full Mad Max, by the way. So, Who knew Mad Max was a documentary? <laughs> she said that if people are leaving their homes without an approved reason, it's a $5,000. And she can only travel three kilometers from her home. Only two people can leave their home. Um, the exercise, and they have to be members of the same household. Or you and your children. If you have multiple children, they don't hold that against They've determined that you need to. And you know that they're, they're shooting um, uh, rescue dogs, right? And they're, they're shooting rescue dogs to keep people from going to shelters and getting dogs and taking them home, right? This is, this is nuts. This is... Let, let me also say this. I, I may have said this before, and this, this is not in my notes, so who knows what's going to happen next. Guys, this is spiritual, and if people do not have the Spirit of the Lord living inside of them, they may not know what to do with themselves very soon, right? This is a spiritual thing. It is the Spirit of the Lord that's going to hold people together. And I firmly believe, and I believe more and more all the time, that churches will become those local places of gathering that will help hold people together. The more things get difficult outside and around the church, um, the more I believe the church needs to be just completely different. I've said it a couple of times now on social media, and I've even gotten some pushback from other Christians. Make sure, if it comes to it, and this is how I put it, if it comes to it, make sure your church is the last place in your community where there are no vaccine passports required. I'm starting to see people talking about churches voluntarily enforcing vaccine passports to allow people in their churches. I have not yet seen confirmation of that, but I'm starting to see that more and more. So I just... 
put that out as a caveat. I don't, I'm sort of waiting for that headline and the information, the reporting, so to speak. But uh, this place is going to be different. The, the local church is going to be different. I mean really different from the rest of the world, especially in some places where this is just going absolutely bonkers. Let's put some of these things together. I mean, we've read a couple of um, philosophers, and so, you know, we've had some of that language in our heads. Let's distill some of this. Um, and, you know, as we continue to interact with this from a Christian worldview, um, several important steps in the woke direction is, is what I've got here. And the, the first is this, is that we separate people from one another. So when a person-to-person -person interaction is mediated by social media, by politics, by um, icons of certain points of view, then normal human interaction begins to fall apart. And the ability to hate more people than you know, that's an interesting dynamic, right? That you hate more people than you know becomes very real because you've been told to do things like that by those who represent your point of view. So the more disconnected people are from stuff like this, just actual physical connection with each other or with their neighbors, the easier it becomes to hate people you don't know. And so you do that, and it becomes easier to flush those other people down the drain when the time comes, right? We'll have an example of that here in just a moment as well. <clears throat> so the church has always been something different. The people of God has always been something different. Gathering for worship, gathering in our communities, families teaching children about the things of God, and on and on the story goes, right? Uh, the Christian worldview has always been different. The way that we interact with each other, the way that we interact with our communities, the way that we offer physical connection to our communities. I mean, for so long, the church called this outreach because we're offering things for the community to come to. And in some places, there's less and less of that. Or it's getting harder and harder to do that. So how much more important is that going to be? And some of you have probably noticed some of those public events uh, where it actually goes well. I mean, people are hungry for public events to be out with other people, right? Um, but this point of view wants to separate people from each other, isolate them from each other. Separate people from their religion as well as se separate people from their religious liberties. Here's why. Religion is not just the source of the human, human being's meaning and purpose. When I say that's how we're created, I believe literally that's how we were created, physically, psychologically, spiritually, relationally. God built in us the need to have him in us. So if you separate people from religion, then you've got this gaping hole where people are finding or are needing to find sources of meaning and purpose. But it's not just that, but religion, some version of corporate religion also produces the ethical and moral guardrails for individual lives, for the way families try to raise themselves, and for the way cultures design themselves. So religions help create the Christian religion, the Judeo-Christian tradition. When we use that phrase, we're talking about these large society-level guardrails where we say this is out of bounds and this is in bounds. And we're always wrestling with that in a pluralistic culture. But the more you get rid of that, who comes in to replace and change where those guardrails stand? 
the only organization on the face of the planet that is larger than the state is the church, is religion. You see, we claim divine authority. You know, we're not the divine authority, but we claim that we have this access to and we're able to communicate divine authority. That's the only authority that is larger than the state. So if the state can get rid of or separate you from this, who then becomes the largest authority out there morally, politically, and on and on. This is an age-old story. It becomes the state. So um, steps in the woke direction, separating people from religion and even their religious liberties. Make the most people as uncomfortable as possible. One of the more famous things that Karl Marx said is um, he said he was after ruthless criticism of everything. Again, this is inside of his writings. So you look at any social structure, he said the only appropriate first step there is to ruthlessly criticize it, just perpetual criticism of structures. So you're constantly tearing down and you're constantly tearing down. Um, the process of constantly agitating. Why are there political movements that are agitating movements? It's to make everyone else as uncomfortable as possible. Now, where moral change needs to happen, we need to be convicted, but constant agitation and criticism is part of the system. This phrase that we've mentioned a few times, one of the famous progenitors of the countercultural revolution of the 1960s says, problematize everything. This is why you can't watch sports without this. This is why blah, 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 because everything has to be thrown in this bucket. Then promise a vague but sweeping vision of the future, sustainable only by them. Sweeping vision of what is possible, but profoundly vague and always unattainable. Statism has always failed. Communism doesn't know how to build anything positive. And what we're talking about is wokeism, that entire world of wokeism, really only criticizes ruthless criticism of everything and unevenly distributes distrust and hate. That we distrust this group of people, we trust this group of people. It's just unevenly distributing all of that to keep everybody off balance. And then this is, this is the gaslighting portion of it all. Marginalize those who disagree. And it's by and large what you and I would consider kind of normal classical liberals, uh, free market society kinds of folks. Um, people who even if they're not, you know, hardcore uh, daily, weekly attending church members basically hold to the Judeo-Christian tradition, well, you need to marginalize them, make them look like the bad guys, and that turns the gaslighting, gaslighting all the way around. I have seen this meme a couple of dozen times um, in the last week or so. Now, how does this work? You find a picture. Now, who knows if a bot created this or not, but it has been spread around like nuts. You find a, a one group of people in a line of trucks and flags and guns who are the Taliban, and then you put it next to another line of, of trucks with flags, and I'm willing to bet there's one or two guns inside of those trucks. <laughs> and what happens here? What happens here? It is, it is reasoning by visual similarity. That's, all, that, that's what it is. And so you're marginalizing the other group. So you're bypassing all of the thought processes. 
You're bypassing reason. You're bypassing all of the explanations and qualifications. You're bypassing all of that, and you're just going straight to the emotional core. And, you know, someone out there is going to go, that looks exactly right to me. So it's just the process of marginalization. It's not the process of critical thought or of public reasoning. All right. Um, we're going to get to this here in just a second. But I, want, I wanted to start getting this out to you guys. This little, uh, this little thing here, what can we do now? The more I, um, the more I do this, the more I get the question, well, what, what, what do we do? You know, what can we do about this? Go ahead. I can't hear you. Okay, we can make some more copies of this. Um, let me explain to you very quickly what this is. So I've been writing this up. This is a draft, right? As you read through this, understand that this is not complete, this is not done. I just felt like this is a good night to just kind of start getting this out. And at some point, this is going to be a little bit more fleshed out. It's going to be a little bit more professional. Um, and I intend on actually getting this out. This is, this is me thinking through um, what on earth can we do now. We've been wrestling with this, and some of it's been really uh, eye-opening, and a lot of it's been really frustrating and frightening. Um, but what on earth can we do? So um, in the table of contents there, you've got the list of little sections here. And again, some of them are very small. This will get fleshed out as time moves on. If, you've got, if you read through this and you've got some other uh, thoughts, constructive criticism, let me know. If you have angry criticism, keep that to yourself. Um, I appreciate it now. Um, don't live by lies. That's right. I'm going to marginalize you if you disagree with me, just so you know. I'm going to do everything in my power to cancel you. So, yeah. <laughs> Don't live by lies, pray, stay aware, and educate yourself. Educate your family. Are you called to be involved? Uh, be ready to forgive. Be a part of new systems. And then what to do about your local church. So a couple of thoughts about this. The, the don't live by lies. The, the, more I, the more I do this, the more I read about this, the more I interact with this, the more important I think this little issue is. So Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote this little essay called Live Not By Lies. He published it on the day that he was arrested by the Soviets and finally um, expelled out of the nation and into the West. And it's a short little essay. It's a great little essay. And he, and he said, me and my friends, we sit around and we talk and we go, we don't know what to do. Um, we don't have any power over the state. Everything we say is going to be censored. We might be able to talk to a handful of people. We have no power to do X, Y, and Z. They've taken away this right. All of our elections are fake. I don't know what to do. Solzhenitsyn's fundamental answer to that question is don't let them take your soul. Don't live by their lies. Keep telling yourself the truth. You know the truth. Keep talking to people who know the truth. They know the truth as well. And over time, that will be the most powerful tool that, you, tool that you have. If you begin to live by their lies, they have you, right? They've got you. You're part of the mass. You're part of the faceless crowd. Just don't do it. And there will be some people like Solzhenitsyn who will stick out. They just have the ability to speak the truth in a culture that's walking down a path of lies and stick out get thrown in jail a couple of times and finally get kicked out of his country in his extreme situation. But some thoughts there about not living by lies right now. And then praying. Um, 
I say here that prayer is never the last ditch effort for the Christian, but our first habitual response, habituated response to all things. Oswald Chambers, um, the great devotional writer, he once said that prayer is not preparation for the task, it is the task. And I like that thought, that it's, it's, not, a, it's not a psychological meditation technique that we're engaged in to lower our blood pressure and make sure that we're sort of cool with everything going on in the world around us. We're actually communicating with the Word who spoke the universe into existence and who defeated death, right? So we're actually engaged with that. And so talk a little bit about the importance of prayer there. Stay aware and educate yourself. That's a lot of what we've been doing right now and why that is so important. Um, to educate your family. And even talking about the role of, of schools and paying attention to and being directly involved with uh, what's going on in your kids' schools. Maybe it's great, maybe it's not. Being called to be involved. This is the question. Um, how many amongst us might actually be well-suited for some version of public office? So it dawns on me, you know, we used to joke about, you know, you're going to vote for everything from dog catcher to the president of the United States. Well, if the dog catchers in Australia are shooting rescue dogs so that you can't go um, get them, then actually voting for dog catcher is a big deal. Does that make sense? Voting on the local level is a really big deal. In fact, a lot of the differences from city to city and state to state is who got elected last. Not just the president or Congress, but who got elected last to your city council and county commissioners. These are big deals. Um, what does it mean to be a business person or entrepreneur in this kind of culture? If, uh, if another group of people are being kicked out of their job for their conscience sake, for their health sake, but they're being kicked out, what does that then mean for the church to facilitate um, entrepreneurial work, business people, and who they can hire and how they can hire. Um, we're going to have to start thinking in new and interesting ways in education and business and in politics as well. Uh, be ready to forgive. I've got a lot more to think about on this one here, a lot more to write about, but um, th this, this, one's, this one's important. Um, we may find ourselves in the position of having suffered at the hands of those who want to find Christ and enter the church. We will need to see this as the victory it is, the gospel of Jesus Christ overcoming the lies of the enemy and saving souls from eternal damnation. So what if somebody does fire you because of your faith or because of some Title IX violation or because you refuse to use a pronoun or whatever the case is, and six months later they have a road to Damascus experience and they walk in and they sit next to you in church? We need to see that for what it is, a victory for the kingdom of God, Right? So the church has to have this kind of gracious, gracious disposition. Being a part of new systems. You can read a little bit of that. Uh, there's, there's more to develop there as well. And then to help make your local church a part of the kingdom of God and how important those local things really are. So as I flesh that out, I'll get that out more. But just folks just keep asking me these questions. And I continue to sort of put down on paper some of my thoughts. I thought, well, at least right now. We'll just start getting some of this out and see if some of it resonates with you guys or if it's helpful at all. All right. Um, that's roughly this week in Woke. <laughs> but I wanted to make sure I talked about the way the politics are working with mandates and why they're working this way. Because this is... 
This is significant. This is a thing. It's not random. It's not by accident. Um, and the more our culture gets split apart and divided, the easier it's going to be for those kinds of inclinations and ideologies to hold more sway over more people, um, which, again, just produces more opportunity for the church to do what it does. Now, I want to transition into something else because I want to make my way into the book of Ezekiel for a handful of reasons. Um, we're going to continue to deal with this kind of stuff, especially as it continues to come up. But I've been promising you now for probably about a month that I'm going to deal with this, does the Bible teach a version of corporate guilt? Um, this is in response to um, this, this belief that... Um, especially Caucasians and white people are guilty for the sins of their ancestors and now need some version of payment for that. Actual reparations or struggle sessions or the recognition that whiteness is a perpetual disposition of racism or white people always benefit from a white privilege, whatever, you know, that phrase means for whatever particular author or speaker. The Christian world, parts of the Christian world have just bit down on that like it's a great big juicy hamburger. We're going to eat all of this that we possibly can. And so they begin to build a biblical case saying, well, as a matter of fact, this is utterly natural. The Bible teaches this over and over and over again. So I want to go to these passages of Scripture that they use a lot, and then I want to deal with some more passages of Scripture about an individual standing in the place of the corporate group or of the nation and speaking about guilt and forgiveness and how this works, one of those passages is in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 8 and 9, specifically Ezekiel chapter 9. Now, the reason I want to sneak my way into Ezekiel is because I eventually want to make my way um, through essentially the middle half or so of the book of Ezekiel and get to Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Now, if you go read Ezekiel 38 and 39, it is this Gog and Magog war that's described in the book of Ezekiel. And it's described in such a way that doesn't make sense except for the U.S. removal from Afghanistan. Okay, now that's a, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. I say that to bait the hook and pull you in, right? I need views on YouTube. That's why I say stuff like this. All right, but it's not all that crazy when we get there. But I do want to talk about that. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. It's about a group of nations that gather against the nation of Israel um, for war to eliminate Israel off the face of the planet. No other nation comes to the defense of Israel, but God Almighty does. That's what happens in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But there's a lot of context to that. There's a, God builds to that point as he makes his way through Ezekiel's prophecy and what he does with Ezekiel through his life. And Ezekiel 9 is an important piece to that. So it helps us kind of turn the corner and, and make our way into uh, the book of Ezekiel and some other things. But does the Bible teach corporate guilt? Let's at least get a couple of these things in here. I'm, these passages of Scripture that I've given you here, besides Daniel 9 and Ezekiel 9, the rest of them are all versions on the same thing. And they're all versions of Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The first time it happens is in Exodus chapter 20. 
Um, but then this same thought shows up a few times. But this is the passage that is used more often than not um, to say that the Bible says that future generations are guilty because of what previous generations have done, and that's how God has set it up. I'm going to read this to you, and then I'm going to start going through some other scripture. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So Moses in this chapter, um, we've, got, we've got two brand new tablets of stone, and the law again is sort of being given back to the people of Israel. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Well, that seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Well, let's spend some time in some other passages of Scripture and see if we can't get a better sense of how the Old Testament actually handles this issue. All right, let's see. What, where do I want to go here? So the basic assertion is, is this. The Bible talks about the guilt of nations all the time. Uh, the prophets deal with it. That passage in Exodus 34 deals with it specifically. Therefore, some version of corporate guilt over generations is true. So one generation does, or a few generations do really nasty things. Their great, 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 great grandchildren are still somehow uh, guilty for that. Guilty, morally guilty for it. Now, this is important. Not just suffering from what previous generations did, but morally guilty for what previous generations did. That's part of the argument. So one kind of national guilt that occurs a lot in Scripture is a nation is judged for its current rebellious behavior. Um, Amos. I love this, these passages in the book of Amos. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. In Amos chapter 1. So the book of Amos, the first two chapters, opens up with um, God declaring the guilt of various nations. And he begins with these various nations around Judah. And then he talks about the guilt of the nation of Judah. And when he begins to talk about the guilt of the nation of Judah, it is different than the other nations and their guilt. So here's how this kind of thing goes. In Amos chapter 1, uh, verse 2 is where the oracle of the prophet actually begins. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the crop of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord. And this is how the next chapter and a half works. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael. It shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord." So for Damascus, for Syria, for three transgressions of Damascus, for four I will not revoke punishment because they have threshed Gilead with a threth, threshing sledges. I'm going to say that one ten times fast, right? For war crimes. So he holds a pagan nation guilty of war crimes. Now part of what's so fascinating to me about the guilt of nations in Amos 1 and 2 is what we call natural law. 
that God has implanted his basic moral character in the core of all human beings and holds them responsible for it. So he holds them responsible for war crimes. Now listen to this. Verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will, the Philistines, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Eden. They were slave traders. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod. In him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. And this happens nation after nation after nation after nation, and then we get to Judah, and God gets grumpy with them for actually ignoring his law as well. Now, these are national judgments, and these are national judgments for in the moment. This is what these nations are doing. This is what they have done to the people of God or to the nations around the people of God. And so that nation will be held guilty for what they are doing. That kind of sense of what a nation is doing, God holds them responsible for that. And we're going to talk about the nuance of what about the righteous people who live in those nations. That's Ezekiel chapter 9. So we have to hold on to that thought here for just a little while. So it's easy to imagine inside of the prophets, these nations that are judged for what they are currently doing. So that, that kind of sense of corporate guilt is just sort of naturally inside of Scripture. It's one of the reasons that we often pray in our Wednesday morning prayer group, prays this way all the time. If you want to come here at 5.30 on Wednesday morning, you are welcome because we have a wonderful group of people. And there's a lot of room for more people at 5.30 in the morning here on Wednesdays for prayers. There's room for you. There's, there's, there's room for you, Mike. There is. There is. You, you can come. You can come. <laughs> we pray on behalf of our nation because of sins of, you know, abortion. And, and on, you know, we think of those things and we actually pray about those things and we sort of stand in the gap and we intercede, right? Um, and again, Ezekiel chapter 9 is going to help us answer some of that question. So all of these and many others are not examples of guilt of past generations, but guilt for policies or actions put in place by a nation. Um, did Daniel chapter 9 disappear? Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. So the majority of Daniel chapter 9 is Daniel praying for his nation. So the first few verses, Daniel has been reading the prophet Jeremiah. In the prophet Jeremiah, God promises a 70-year captivity, and then he's going to open the door to allow his people to return to their promised land. Daniel's reading Jeremiah. He realizes that 70 years is, is pretty close. So he goes to the Lord, and he begins to pray. His prayer is fascinating because he prays about the sin of his people. He prays about why they were taken into exile a generation previous, and he prays about their own current sin as well. And then he asks for God's forgiveness. And listen to how Daniel does this. If we're going to make these broad sweeping claims that the Bible says future generations are morally responsible for what previous generations did, we have to actually sit down and do the work. Daniel 9, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. To us, O Lord... And Daniel continues to use, Daniel, a righteous man in Scripture, in this prayer, 
continues to use personal plural language, us, we kind of stuff. He uses the royal we. <laughs> to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. God is a merciful and a loving God, but he is a covenant God. So every time we're dealing with the nation of Israel, and anything that we would call corporate guilt, we're dealing with covenant people. You go back Deuteronomy chapter 28, and Moses lays it all out before the entire nation in the covenant of blessings and cursings. You follow the Lord your God, and this is what will happen. You rebel against the Lord your God, and this will happen. The nation of Israel is a covenant nation. This nation is not that same kind of covenant nation. The church is in a different kind of covenant relationship with God. And again, Ezekiel chapter 9 is going to help us understand the difference. But when Daniel speaks of this covenant and us, he is saying we were actually put under legal requirement with God, and he has every legal right to call this covenant due. That's why he judged us, but he is a God of mercy and compassion, which is why he's opening the door for us to go home. Scoot down to verses 14 and 15. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as, the, as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. So judgment rightly comes from God, the covenant partner. Skip down, just because I love the end of this prayer. Excuse me, verses 18 and 19. Daniel finishes by saying this, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations. And the city that is called by your name, Jerusalem is just the temple, it's all in ruin. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. I just let incline your ear, listen, and act for your sake and for the sake of your city. If we want to say that passages of Scripture like this justify the guilt of one generation for another, this passage of Scripture also justifies only one individual who was able to make that happen. Who was that? It's God and it's God alone. He is the only one who is allowed to do this. And in fact, Daniel says, you're the one who does this. That's why we suffered that's why you're going to be merciful now. So if we're going to make a biblical case, we're going to make a full biblical case. But Daniel's speaking about us, and he's speaking about the covenant people of the nation of Israel. So as for generational guilt, 
What Daniel prays and what we see and what becomes clear in Ezekiel chapter 9 is that the generation in exile is suffering from the sin of their forebearers. They're not responsible. Let's put it like this. They're suffering from the sin of their forebearers. They are responsible for their own sin. There's the difference. They are suffering from the sin of their forebearers. They are guilty for their own sin. That's the answer to the Exodus chapter 34 passage. And that is the nearly universal historical Christian understanding of what that passage means, visiting the sins of the fathers upon the children and their children's children for three to four generations, suffering from the consequences of the guilt and the sin of their forebears, not morally responsible for the sins of their mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers. There's the difference. Not morally responsible for, but actually suffering from. So to give a little hint of this Exodus chapter 9 passage, let's sum Exodus. Ezekiel chapter 9. Go to Ezekiel chapter 9. I have never taught through the book of Ezekiel. So this is going to be fun for me. We'll see if it's fun for you. I don't know. I can't answer that question. (laughs) But uh, I I like this stuff, and it's going to continue to help us, I think, make sense of what's going on around us. Ezekiel chapter 9, in context, before we get inside of this chapter specifically, um, Ezekiel is one of the young men who's carried off into exile with the first wave of exiles, which means he's probably in the same part of the exile as Daniel is. He's a young guy uh, of the priestly class. Um... But because he is in exile, when he turns 30, he's not allowed to become a priest because he's not at the temple, and the temple eventually is going to be gone. So that's how the book of Ezekiel opens up. And then God, instead of tapping him on the shoulder as a priest, taps him on the shoulder as a prophet. And he begins to see the glory of God. We've got incredible vision in Ezekiel chapter 1. And then in the first seven chapters, God begins to talk to Ezekiel about the judgment of the nation of Judah in the city of Jerusalem. And Ezekiel is one of these prophets, he and Jeremiah, but Ezekiel more so. They sort of act out some of these lived out parables. So God's asking Ezekiel to do crazy things, to show people what's going to happen to them, what did happen to them, and, and on and on, right? So those are, that, that's sort of roughly what's happening in the first seven chapters. In Ezekiel chapter 8, we hit another calendar marker, and Ezekiel says, on another day of the month, in another year, God actually began to show me a vision of what was happening at the temple. At this time, the temple had not yet been destroyed. And so there's some version of work still happening in the temple. And God takes Ezekiel into the temple. And let's go to Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. So, I mean, the stuff that happens to Ezekiel is crazy. But either, you know, he's just sort of lifted and placed or God gives him a vision of what's happening in the temple while he is in exile. So this this divine messenger in verse 5, Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, so he is seeing the temple. In the entrance was the image of jealous, this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations of the house of Israel are committed here. 
to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see still greater abominations. So why does Ezekiel in exile see the throne room and the glory of God in exile and not in the temple? Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10 answer that question. In Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel is shown the abominations, the, the men and women who are in the temple complex, and they are worshiping pagan gods. They're worshiping demons. By the time we get to chapter 10, what has happened is the glory of God has departed from the temple and is now actually with the people of God in exile, which is really a stunning little move. So the rest of chapter 8 is Ezekiel seeing all these abominations that happen inside of the temple. And then Ezekiel chapter 9. And let's just kind of <clears throat> tease ourselves a little bit with this, and then we'll come back next time, and we'll start digging through it. Um, and I know I keep promising from week to week what's going to happen next week, but we're going to try to just kind of keep digging through Scripture next week. But who knows what will happen? But Ezekiel chapter 9, so again, think of this in terms of corporate guilt, a nation that's being judged, a city that's being judged, a people that are being judged, and how God does it. It's brilliant. Then he cried in my ears, this is chapter 9, verse 1. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. So God is calling forth these divine executioners. My goodness. There's not just one angel of death. There are several of them. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. you got to love the Old Testament. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist, and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar, the bronze altar that is actually in the temple. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it is rested in the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the house. It is literally on the way out of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were b before the house. Then he said to them, defile the house. Now this is how low things have sunk in the temple, that God is actually defiling the temple with the blood of these people. Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck the city. And while they were striking, I was left alone. I fell on my face and cried, Ah, oh Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? The guilt of a city, the judgment of a city, and yet what does God do? He actually marks individuals who will be spared from his judgment, but the individuals who are spared from his judgment will still live in a city that is full of those who have been judged. Does that make sense? That means they still lived in a judged city, in a judged nation, 
Life will be different for them, but they have not been judged by God. So God here, even dealing with the city of Jerusalem, is still talking about individual guilt and individual innocence. Then he said to me, the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist, brought back word saying, it's done. I've done everything you've commanded me to do. This is dramatic stuff. This is really big stuff. All right. We will come back to Ezekiel chapter 9 next time. Um, this is what they used to call a cliffhanger, right? <laughs> and we'll keep working our way through because working our way through large chunks in the next several chapters is going to help us make sense of where I want to go with Ezekiel 38 and 39. But this is important stuff to the kinds of things we've been talking about even leading up to this point. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Um, we are grateful again for your word, for your truth, for who you are. God, help us to see and understand the things that you have given us. And Lord, that we would be able to see your word and your will so clearly that, Father, we will be able to make sense of when things around us are false or wrong or broken. And we can make sense of the structures of the world around us that end up causing so much division and pain in places where you want unity, where you want joy and peace and thriving. God, may we be the kind of people who see with those kinds of eyes and know how to enter into this world in redemptive ways with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with our feet shod with peace, with the sword of truth, with all of these things, Father, to know how to walk into this world clothed like this. Father, give us those kinds of eyes and hearts and minds. And Lord, we pray your grace upon the rest of this week in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. 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 See you all next time.